Well, it's a real honor and privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, I am excited uh, to look at the text that we're going to look at uh, because of just how it came about, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But in 2002, there was a, a Major League Baseball team in the American League, the Oakland A's, and they had a historic season. And this historic season was depicted in the movie Moneyball. I don't know if you've heard of this movie or watched it. It's, it's a movie I enjoy to watch. It's a great story about the Oakland A's. And their manager, Billy Bean, who himself had been a Major League Baseball player but didn't have a very exciting career, but he was a good baseball manager. So he's managing a team, the Oakland A's, which in Major League Baseball, they're, they're in the lower kind of echelon of of uh, budget. So they are, compared to the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Rangers, they have a much lower budget and so they can't afford very good players. And so this season, the beginning of the movie starts with the 2001 season coming to an end and the manager, Billy Bean, very disappointed because it was, it was a tragic season. But it was one of many. It was kind of their trend. And so in addition to the season coming to an end, his best and highest paid players leave. They take other contracts to go play for other teams. So he's in a tough spot and he has to figure out, he goes to the, the owner of the team, asks for more money. He says, sorry, I can't give you more money. You just have to field a team with the money that we have, which is hard to do. So he's trying to figure out, well, he, there's, there's this encounter he has with a guy named Peter Brand, who was an economics graduate from Yale, who was working for the Cleveland Indians. And he ends up having this exchange where he recognizes there's something different about this guy, Peter, that he needs to know. And so he, he interacts with him, it gets him to come and join his organization, and they devise a different way to identify players that will help them win. And so they, they set up this system, and they recruit players, and it's a very kind of unorthodox way to do it, but they put together a team, and they end up doing something historic, and that is winning 20 consecutive games that ends up leading them into the playoffs. First time they'd been in the playoffs for a long time. And they get to the playoffs, but they end up losing in the first round of the playoffs. And so the movie, as it draws to an end, you, you've kind of gone on this ride with the Oakland A's through this season, and you're, but then it's devastating because they end up historically, they, they lose that first round. And so you see that there's a scene where Billy's in, in the locker room and he's, he's just defeated. He's just, ah, he's just bummed. And it's really kind of the way the movie started. Billy Bean bummed about his team not winning. But then Peter Brand says, hey, uh, Billy, I'd like you to come and look at some film. And he's like, I'm not really into that right now. I don't want to watch video footage. I mean, the season's over. I'm, I'm good. He goes, no, I, I need you to come with me. He goes, no, I'm really not into it. He said, come with me. So he, he does. He goes to the film room. And he says, I want you to see this. This is a, one of our minor league teams uh, the Vesalia Oaks, and here's a catcher, 240-pound catcher, and he's going to do something that he never does. This catcher is afraid of running to second base. Okay, he's a professional baseball player, but he's afraid of running and rounding first base and going to second for some reason. And he's like, okay. He goes, but watch this. He's going to do something he never does. He's going to round and head to second base because he's going to get a fastball pitched at him. He's going to turn on it, and he's going to send it deep left center field and it shows the clip and, and this catcher's name is Jeremy Brown and he's, he's running and he gets to he's 
turning around first base, and somehow he trips, and he falls to the ground. Totally, I mean, his worst nightmares are realized at this point. He's hit it. He's finally gotten up the courage to round first base, only to trip, fall to the ground, and it shows him turning and crawling on his hands and knees back to first base. And he's clinging to first base because he doesn't want to get out. And he's just there. And then all of a sudden you see in this clip, you see the manager's kind of telling him to get up, get up really fast. And the first baseman's kind of laughing at him. And the rest of the crowd's all laughing at him. And Billy Bean's watching this. He goes, oh man, they're laughing at him. What's that about? Well, Peter says, well, what he's about to realize is they're laughing at him because he hit the ball 60 feet above the fence and hit a home run. (laughs) And he's sitting there with his back turned to the home run, clinging to first base, not realizing that he hit a home run and he could walk around the bases if he wanted to. He doesn't even have to run. And what Peter Brand is trying to to show Billy Bean is, look, this is a metaphor. And he goes, I know it's a metaphor. Yes, we we, we hit a home run and I don't realize we hit a home run and we did something magical here. But I think what's interesting, too, is Jeremy Brown and his home run, his falling to the ground, and his clinging to first base is a metaphor for us, for Christians. Because I think sometimes we we don't realize that Christ, as our designated hitter, has hit the home run already. And as we're running around first base and we mess up or we trip up, we tend to turn and cling to something other than him. And we, we don't realize that the home run's been hit. We don't realize that all that has been accomplished on our behalf because of who Christ is, because of our identity in him that we're made righteous, we're found pure and guiltless because of the blood of Christ we don't realize that we can walk in new life in Christ, and so sometimes we return and cling to something that's more immediate that really isn't going to help us. And I, I want to springboard or think back to what, how Kevin left us last Sunday. He was preaching out of Revelation, and he kept driving home this idea of the hope of eternity overflowing in our hearts. And I remember as I was hearing him preach that, I was taking notes, and I wrote down two questions. And the questions, because he he really did a great job of showing us what the Scriptures tell us about the hope of eternity and how it should overflow in our hearts. But a question I had is, what does that look like? Like, what does that actually look like? What would a life overflowing with the hope of eternity look like? And then my second question was, what hinders that from happening in my life? And the interesting thing as to how we arrive today at the passage we're going to look at is several months ago I was invited to go with this. We have an Armenia team heading out here shortly and we're going to uh, celebrate them here at the end of the service. But prior to joining with them, I get to go a little bit early to Kiev, Ukraine. And I get to uh, speak at a seminary. There's a pastor's conference for about 50 Ukrainian pastors gathering. And they've asked me to come and speak on the topic of preaching the gospel in a pluralistic society. And so as I've been preparing and prepping for that, I was also invited to come and preach today. And as these two things are converging, 
My text was Acts 17, where Paul arrives and preaches the gospel in Athens. And I can think of no better person that demonstrates or embodies a life that is overflowing with the hope of eternity and what that life looks like. And he also addresses what hinders our lives from also looking like that in that same passage. And so, if you will, turn with me to Acts 17. So we're going to start in verse 16, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. We're going to take a look at the first section that kind of sets this up, but here we have Paul in Athens. He's waiting uh, for Timothy and Silas to join him, and notice what we see when we look in here. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace and every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. All right, so that that sets the stage. Paul is in Athens. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy, but as he's waiting, there's a couple of things to note. He's provoked. It says that his spirit is provoked or stirred. Why? Because he looks and he sees rampant idolatry. He's looking at Athens and he sees idolatry everywhere. Idolatry, false worship, looking at, at what some call counterfeit gods, false gods, and he sees this, these lives devoted to worshiping empty things, powerless things that cannot produce what they say they're going to produce. And his heart is stirred. And so what does Paul do when he sees this, is provoked? Well, he engages. Notice he goes first to the synagogue where there are Jews and it says devout people or uh, God-fearing Gentiles as some of your translations may say. But the idea is that you have one group that recognizes Yahweh, but then it says he was also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So now you have in Athens, you have a Greco-Roman population who believe in many gods. So you have the Jews and the devout Gentiles or the God-fearing Gentiles who believe in one God. Then in this gathering, you also have a group of people that believe in the pantheon of gods, many gods. And in fact, in Athens, they believed, they primarily worshipped Athena, but they also recognized the worship of the other gods. But then he continues, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So now we have two other parties. So you have the, the people that believe in one god, you have the people that believe in many gods, And then he comes into the Epicureans. Now, Epicureans, it was a a group uh, or a philosophy that was popular. And the meaning of life for the Epicureans was the minimization of pain and the pursuit of pleasure. 
But it wasn't kind of your, your base level pleasures, you know, sex, drug, rock and roll. It wasn't that. It was kind of the finer things in life. They were your cheese and wine crowd. Okay, so you had this group of people that the goal in life was to minimize any kind of physical pain or soulful distress. And they were essentially materialists or atheists. They didn't believe in an afterlife, and they certainly despised the idea of judgment. But then you have a fourth group, Stoics. This is an interesting group because this is a group that identified that God, they wanted to align themselves with what they viewed as the divine reason, or in Greek, the logos, And John picks up on the Logos, and we see in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God, in the beginning He was with God. Logos there, the Word. That's how John is interpreting that. But here we see the Stoics, and they're a group of people that want to align themselves with this divine reason that they believe permeates everything, and kind of even dictates where people live, what they do, how they exist, and so the best thing to do is to align yourself with that divine reason, and a big part of their philosophy was to, regardless of pain or pleasure, to remain the same, to be unaffected by pain or pleasure in this life, and to eventually align yourself so much so with this divine reason that you're unaffected by this life. And so you have four groups, and what's interesting is you have four groups that represent all fundamental worldviews known to man. You have your theists, or your belief in one God people. You have your polytheists, that believe in many gods. You have your atheists, or your atheists, that believe that God isn't there, and that humanity and this life and this temporal existence is all that matters. And then you have your pantheists, that think God is in everything. All of them are represented in this passage. And so when you consider what a pluralistic society is, it's a society that sees and experiences and allows for the plurality of all these different religious worldviews and all these different philosophies. A popular way to understand that would be, if you guys have seen this, the sticker, coexist. If, If the Athenians would have had cars, this would have been on their car. This celebration of multiple different worldviews. And in fact, you have this kind of response. They're, it says that they're, they would, those who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. This is kind of your ancient form of the modern day college town. All they had to do was, I mean, they didn't have anything else to do, so they'd sit around and talk about new ideas. And so Paul engages. And what's fascinating is the way that he engages tells us, answers a little bit the question that I had at first is what does a life look like that is so animated by the hope of eternity? And then the second question, what hinders us? And what we're going to see here is that for both, both of these questions, the idea of ridding our hearts of the things that we put our hope in besides Christ. Ridding our hearts or freeing them from all these other sub-hopes that reside in our hearts that we put our confidence in and we hope give us what we want. 
but then eventually don't. That's what stops us. That's what hinders our life from looking like the life that we're going to see in the expression that we see in Paul. Because what we see in Paul is there's this, first of all, he has a faithful obedience. That's what a life that's animated by the hope of eternity is obedience. Faithful obedience regardless of what it costs you. Obedient to follow him regardless of what it costs you. And for Paul, he endured suffering, physical suffering, emotional distress, and even the degradation of his, of his stance in society. Right? He had come from something so incredibly set and successful to now we see him here, and he's now called names. It's interesting, uh, this phrase, it says, what does this babbler have to say, right? They're looking in verse 18. What does this babbler wish to say to us? Some translations in the raw translation here, it refers to ignorant show-off is what they were saying. They weren't, they weren't like confused by him. They were trying to demean him. But regardless of what they said or what they thought about Paul, he proceeded with faithful obedience. Another thing you see here is a commitment to share the hope. He sees and he's provoked by all of this idolatry and he's provoked to the point of not just sitting there and stewing about it, but he acts on it. He sees idolatry and regardless of what it may cost him, he proceeds because historically, Paul is not unaware of what happened in Athens historically 450 years prior to this. In Athens 450 years before Paul's arrival was a guy named Socrates who was executed because he was bringing the belief and preaching foreign divinities and corrupting the youth. Paul's not ignorant to how Athenians can react when it comes to preaching foreign divinities. And regardless of that, he says no. He's provoked such that he has to share this hope. He can't let them continue and not have done, tried to do something about it. And so there's a couple of ways that, that we see him proceed then. So let's get into what he, how he addresses the Athenians, okay, those gathered. And there's, some, there's a, a, a pattern that we see develop here in the way that Paul approaches them. And we're going to see him do two things. He, he is either going to confirm or he's going to confront and one of the things we see on display here is the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we first encounter it, it says yes and it says no. You'll see what I mean. So in verse 22, continuing, so Paul standing in the midst of the Oropagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Okay, you see right there, he starts out and he recognizes that they are very religious. And I think one of the things that we see here is Paul is confirming that drive, that desire to worship, to engage in pursuing what's out there, to pursue truth, that's a right desire. That's how we're wired. We are wired to find truth, and we're wired to worship. And that's one of the things Paul is recognizing. He's not condemning them for that. He's confirming this thing, 
I even see an inscription to an unknown God. Well, here, let me, let me fill that in. Let me fill in the blank there for you. And that's how he proceeds. So he begins by confirming. And when the gospel confronts us, it's confirming that we have desires in our heart. We desire fulfillment, significance, safety, identity. And we're right to want these things. This is how we're wired. But notice then how he proceeds. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods of time and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Oropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we see Paul engage with them, first confirming their pursuit of religion, their desire to worship and seek out truth is a right desire. But he then proceeds to show them that their pursuit of it is actually gone wrong. That it's a right desire, but they're pursuing it in such a way that they're not going to be fulfilled by that desire. And that it's going to be found wanting and leave them empty. He, if you were to walk through this in more detail, you would see him confirm and confront just about every worldview that's there. Right? We talked about the theists, the polytheists, the atheists, and the pantheists. You walk through this, and first of all, he identifies that God is one. The God who made the world and everything in it. He is a creator God. He's personal because he takes mindfulness of who you are, where you are, and where you're born, where you're going to live. He engages personally. Well, that immediately is an affront to the polytheists who think God is many. He's saying, nope, the God who's personal that's an affront to the pantheist who thinks that this divine force or divine reasoning that permeates everything, which is akin to like Star Wars and the force, he confronts that and says, no, God is one and he's personal. He then proceeds to identify that Jesus Christ is that God and he proved himself by rising from the dead. Well, that's an affront to the, the Jews that are present. So you see him confront every single worldview. But one of the things that we find here 
is that he shows them that what they want in their worldview will, will become empty. That what they desire or they're hoping in their worldview to produce, that only a life in Christ can produce and it does it far better. When we consider the hope of eternity and what hinders us from living and being animated by the hope of eternity, it's not that we don't believe in the hope of eternity, it's that we've oftentimes we place our hope in other things that aren't eternal. We place our hope in things that are very temporal and we're trusting in them and hoping and expecting that they will fulfill desires that, that we have. Now, they're right desires, but we just pursue them in a wrong way. When you consider that back in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve eat from the tree. And shortly thereafter, they're expelled from the garden. And what happens is this begins them on a trajectory where they're going to pursue security and significance because that's what's lost in the garden. In the garden, they're perfectly protected and provided for in every way possible. But when they are expelled from the garden, that provision and protection doesn't exist in the same way. They're also in the garden as image bearers of God. The image of God in the face of man is now marred because of sin. And that loss of identity, understanding that we bear his image and who we are and what we're supposed to do starts to become confused. And so when you venture out of Genesis 3 through the rest of the scriptures, it's a constant story of humanity seeking for security and significance, especially apart from God. In all of these various kings that they wanted to have, the many times that they engage in false worship, they're pursuing security and significance. And just like Paul indicated to the Athenians, that's a right desire. Wanting security and significance, we're supposed to want that. That's something that's lacking because we live in a world that is marred by sin. But on our pursuit of security and significance, which ultimately that leads to contentment, the fulfillment of our desires, anytime we pursue that outside of Christ, it will become wanting. We will be, it will be found wanting and it is powerless to produce for us what we want from it. And yet we pursue it. And the interesting thing too is that another thing was happening in, in Athens here. I mentioned that they were polytheistic by and large, believed in, in worship of many gods, but Athens in particular worshipped Athena. And that's the namesake of the city. And something that was pretty popular in the ancient uh, culture was something called henotheism. And that was simply the belief in one god above other gods, and so, worshiping one God is primary, but still entertaining the existence of other gods as well. And that's something that Paul was confronting here, right? This, I see you have an inscription to the unknown God, 
because they were trying to cover their bases. They're like, well, we've got every other God. Let's throw one out there that we don't, maybe we missed one and let's just hedge our bets on this. But he's trying to demonstrate to them that their way of pursuing and understanding and relating to God is not only found wanting, but it's false and will receive judgment. And he doesn't pull punches. He says that the former times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he's calling everyone to repent and turn to Christ. We have this tendency in our own life and in our own hearts to say, I love you, Lord. I know that you hit the home run, but first base is familiar. And I like first base because I've been there before and I can, I can manage first base here. Even though I'm crawling on my hands and knees, I can cling to it and I'm safe here. And he's saying, no, I hit a home run. You're safe at home. Run the bases. Don't proclaim that you love me, but then entertain the existence of other gods and, other, and place your hope in other things that are temporal and found wanting. That's the challenge for us here is that for us to live and walk with eternity as the hope that fills our heart, looking forward to the hope laid up for us in heaven, as Paul says to the Colossians, that's going to drive us. If we're animated by that hope, we'll have little regard for what happens to us personally because we'll realize, I'm good. I'm in Christ, and so whatever people say about me or do to me, I'm good because I know him and he's got me. That's the life demonstrated by Paul. That's the life that Paul is trying to proclaim to the Athenians. Don't find your hope in anything else other than him. And when you do so, your life will be so secure in him that you won't, you won't mind anymore what happens to you. You'll be so filled with the knowledge, the love, and the joy that comes in Christ that you'll want to tell other people no matter what. And that's what we're driving at here. Paul is living a life where in Philippians he tells them, I've learned what it's like to have much or to little, to have little, to be, face pleasure or pain. It doesn't matter because I'm in Christ. Forgetting what lies behind, pressing on to what lies ahead, pushing into the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We're to press into that, not concerned about what's back here not building up our own kingdom but pursuing his kingdom and that's what paul is driving us at that's what a life that's overflowing that's driven by the hope of eternity looks like it has little regard for self and total regard for god and his creation and sharing the message of hope with others amen as we finish here and we move into a time of response, I would encourage you to spend some time assessing and asking the Lord, are there things in my life, Lord, that I am placing my hope in that I don't even realize? Are there things that I have placed hope in and am expecting things from besides you that I'm not aware of? Now, it's really easy for us to look at 
the, the message in Athens and go, well, we don't have shrines and statues of gold and silver and stone. And so clearly there's a, that was back then. We're, it's different now. We don't have that problem. But the reality is we do. Our idolatry looks a lot different. But someone once told me, take your time, your money, your relationships, what keeps you up at night, you follow that trail, and when you take that assessment and that inventory, at the end of that will be a throne. And whatever's on that throne is what you're putting your hope in. And you're going to work tirelessly to protect it and to invest in it. And if Jesus isn't on that throne at the end of that trail, then you, like me, have stuff to pray about and to confess to the Lord and ask him to come in and help us to fully embrace and walk in this new life in Christ that he has called us to because he hit the home run. That's a reality. That is a fact. And so now let's round first and let's keep going to second and to third and to go to home. Amen?